So we've been talking about the Messiah. We've been talking about Isaiah 9, 6. We can put that up on the screen. It says Isaiah 9, 6. We've been talking for a couple weeks now. This will be the third week of this sermon series. For unto us a child is born, for a child is born to us. I keep hearing the lyrics of this song in my head, right? For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These, these four royal titles are given to this son that has promised the, the Messiah. Christians have claimed from their beginnings that Jesus is the Messiah, the Hebrew word for the Greek word that we know as Christ. It is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, function, and office. It's foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus did not replace, nor did he deny the expectations of the foretold Messiah. He fulfilled them. That is important, that he fulfilled the promises that were promised, that prophesied, rather, in the Old Testament, such as this verse that we just read, Isaiah 9, 6. Last two weeks, we talked about the wonderful counselor. First week was about the wonderful counselor. Christ the Messiah is the living embodiment of extraordinary wisdom. He is our wonderful counselor. Mighty God is the second week last week, and we talked about Jesus the Messiah did just as God does. By his power and might, he healed the sick and infirm. He forgave sins, and he set free those captive in bondage. Jesus the Messiah is our mighty God. And this morning, I have a lot to talk about. But I'm not going to try to talk about all of it. We're going to talk about Jesus being the everlasting father, being called the everlasting father. And we're going to talk about how the son is called father. And that seems weird. I mean, honestly, it does. It's it's like, well, which is it? You know, isn't this the the same guy, the same son who, who when he's baptized by John, Uh, John and everybody hears a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So obviously there's a father and there's a son. And yet the son here is prophesied by Isaiah. He's claiming that he's going to be called everlasting father. Isn't this the same man who who more than a few times in the gospels we read where he prays to the father, Right? I mean, even on the cross, he prayed to the Father. In the, in the garden before the cross, he prayed to the Father. Many times he talks about he's going away. He, he, he tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to be right back. I'm going to go up here to the mountains to pray to the Father. So how can the Son be Father? Did Isaiah make a mistake with this prophecy? that We read in Isaiah 9, 6. Did, did Jesus not fulfill this prophetic messianic announcement, is this, is this a screw up in the Bible? Oops. It's a paradox. And paradox does not mean it's a falsehood. Paradox does not mean contradiction, period. Let's re, let's, I'm going to put this up on the screen. It says, a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement. Seemingly absurd, seemingly self-contradictory Statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So, so, so even though there seems like there's a, there's this, this, wait, 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 that's, that's a mistake. It, It may not be a mistake. 
So let's explore that a little bit. Let's, let's go back to Isaiah 9. Let's read verse 1 through 3 and then jump down to verse 6. It says in verse 1, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And the people who walk in darkness will see great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Verse 3, remember this phrase, you will enlarge the nation of Israel. Remember that phrase, and its people will rejoice. Let's jump down to verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's talk about what a father does. Quite simply, a father creates, doesn't he? He's not a father unless he has kids. So he creates. He creates family. He creates. And a father in the family, his responsibility is to guide, guard, and govern. To guide, guard, and govern. So he has basically four responsibilities. You could, you could say, well, there's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah, there's more to it than that. Sure. I'm not going to spell everything out this morning. I don't have time to spell everything out. So basically, in, in, in essence though, a father first creates, creates a family. And then he guides, guards, and governs. So how is God a father? In the ancient world, the father was seen as a final supervisor and supporter of family life. It is understandable that God was and is seen as the supreme father and creator of all that is. I mean, we read Genesis, right? In the beginning, God. And then he goes through and he tells the story of that creation, the beautiful creation of of everything, all that is, right? All that we see, all that's... All that we don't even see, all that we don't understand even. He created everything. He's that amazing. He's that mighty. And we even see this, this story is touched on and recounted by Paul. It's recounted in, in the, the, the very beginning of the first gospel, or John's gospel, the first chapter, the first verse, the first several verses. God created all things. Throughout the Old Testament, we read... Of God attempting to guide, guard, and govern his chosen yet struggling nation of Israel. Struggling nation. I mean, read, read, um, read some of the stories in Exodus. It's not pretty, right? There's a, there's a struggle going on. Uh, Exodus, Numbers, Judges, the books of the kings. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, the 1st the and 2nd Chronicles. This is just a messed up story one after another. I mean, judges alone, I mean, it's like there's almost no redemptive stories. There's like basically I can, that I can think of in the, all of the several stories, the many stories in Judges, there's one redemptive, one story that's actually good, and it's the story of Deborah. All the others are messed up. Yes, even Samson, he's probably one of the worst. The struggle is real. God's struggle is real. <laughs> But he does not give up. He is constantly attempting to guide and guard and govern this people. He is being their father. In Exodus 4.22, God speaks of Israel as my firstborn son. In Hosea 11.1, God said of Israel, out of Egypt I call my son. Speaking of the Exodus from uh, slavery in Egypt. 
Throughout the book of Isaiah, God is often referred to as father and Israel is referred to as, as his children or similar terms. God is the father of Israel. The Israel saw it that way. They understood it that way. At least they understood it as an analogy, sure. They knew that he was the creator of all things. They, they saw, even if they bucked against it, the guidance, the guarding, and the governance of God. Let's look at Psalm 103, 7 through 14, and we see the character of this father. Verse 7 says, he revealed his character. God revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, constantly guiding and guarding, forgiving and saying, having patience, right? We talked about that last week. We talk, I read to you a few uh, lines from the, the song Seasons by Hillsong where he says, where he says uh, that um, he could have saved us in a moment. What did he say? He could, you could have saved us in a second, but instead you sent a child, the patience of God. He could have just swept down, snapped his fingers and say, but it's all done. But he's patient. And we'll see why he's patient. He doesn't want just a snapping of fingers, a he wants to do something. We'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Again, let's look at Psalm 68, 5 through 6. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, Father, talking about God, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He is Father. He is good. He has always taken active, active interest in and care for the people he created. From Genesis to Malachi, we see this over and over again. Often the people bucked against him and he would get angry. But his anger was not hatred. His angry was, anger was not, I'm going to kill them all. His anger is because he's so pleading for them to do the right thing. So pleading them for them to follow his guidance, guarding, and his governance. And in the gospel, in the gospels, we see Jesus often refer to God as Father, and the Jewish leaders and others around were not confused. They knew he was speaking of God. So how can Jesus? So God is Father. We we accept that, sure, right? So how can Jesus, God's only begotten Son, as we read in John three sixteen, be called everlasting Father? Let's talk about this idea of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've got to start there. Because if you don't see that, then the paradox becomes impassable. It becomes contradiction, period. But if you understand that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it begins to turn things. There's still mystery in that. Everybody, everybody probably has some struggle with the idea of, of the Trinity. It's a mystery. It's, it's hard to, how can three be one, right? 
They are three. Are they just really just, and I don't want to get into this because, man, it, it, <laughs> you get all sorts of things. I can get a lot of theological terms out here that, that will mess your mind up. There's a thing called modality where, you see, I'm doing it already. Modality where the Father, Son, and Spirit are three beings, separate beings. And they're, but, but, but really what they are is just three re- revelations or three manifestations of, of God. Well, that's called modality, and that was deemed heresy by one of the councils. I don't remember which one it was now. I'm sorry, I can't remember everything. So we could go through all those things, and we're not going to. I promise, because otherwise we're going to run out of time. And you probably don't want to hear about it anyway. The Father and Son, I'll just, I'll simplify it by saying this. The Father and Son do not have opposing agendas. They do not have opposing opinions. The Father, there's a, there's a somewhat popular, and I think we addressed it a few, you know, a few months ago. There's a somewhat popular uh, doctrine, theology, that God is angry God hates sin, which he does, but he hates sin so much that he looks down upon us humans as wicked, depraved, evil. And so he sent his son to basically save us from the wrath of God. And that is such a distortion of scripture. That is not, that that plays into, that basically starts to chisel away at the oneness of God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That oneness then becomes, it's almost like Jesus is fighting God the Father on our behalf. And that does not fly with anything in the Scriptures. So what is that wrath? Well, let me just give you a spoiler alert. The wrath of God is not against you and you. It's against the sin. It's against the sin and the death. That's what his wrath was against. That is his enemy. Paul even talks about it. I'm getting way off subject here. But Paul even talks about in Corinthians. I get excited about this part. He talks about death being the final enemy. Yes, he defeated sin and death. The sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Does it still sting? Yes. But God's not done yet. I need to get back to my notes or I'm going to get off this. So let's see what Jesus said. Let's see what Jesus said about him in the Father. So in John chapter 5, at the beginning of John chapter 5, we see Jesus approach, uh, uh, there's this pool of water at, at Bethesda. And I think something about five porches. I can't remember what it is. But basically, so there's all these people that are gathered around this pool waiting to get healed. And I'm going to summarize the story. There's, he sees this one man who's been sick and he's obviously been laying there for a long time. And he goes up to the man and says, hey, you know, why aren't you getting up and getting in the water? Because they're supposed to be like healing something or other in the water. Why aren't you getting up? He says, well, I don't have anybody to help me. And so he just simply looks at the man and says, pick up your mat, because he's laying on this mat. Pick up your mat and walk. This man couldn't walk. He was sick. He was lame. He couldn't do anything. So the man just goes, okay, okay. picks up his mat and walks. Healed. Well, saved, completely healed. This was on the Sabbath, by the way. So I'm giving you that, that background so that when we get to verse 16, which we're going to see now. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. The Sabbath rules, a little side note. Picking up the mat was work, and you weren't supposed to work on Sabbath. Yeah, that's how picky they were. 
So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working. And so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father. His father. Thereby making himself equal with God. How dare he? So Jesus explained, explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. There's no opposing agenda. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Let's jump to John 14, verses 1 through 10. Let's read this. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is, this is in the middle of a big, long, and probably my fa- one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Starts at about middle way of ver- chapter 13 and goes all the way through 15, maybe even into 16. It's this big, long sermon, the final sermon of Jesus to his disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more, there's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, I would, have, why, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I'm going. I love that. He says, you know the way I, where I'm going. And verse 5, is the, Thomas, poor Thomas. No, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, poor Philip. This is why I said last week that that, that I'm going to kind of spoil the rest of this, but, you know, Thomas, we, we see that Poor doubting Thomas, he's the first one of the disciples that truly got it when he said, my Lord and my God, when he saw the risen Savior, he saw the wounds, he touched him with his own hands. He went, oh, oh my goodness, you're bigger than we even thought. They always came up short. This is an example. We don't know the way. Oh, I, I am the way. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Philip said, Lord, so is the Father and we will be satisfied. He just tried to kind of explain that. Philip just doesn't get it. They just keep coming up inadequate in their understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Other translations of the the scriptures, other English translations, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Yes, there is, and I don't want to get into all the, the, the mind-blowingness of the Trinity right now, but there is a separate entity of the Father. Yes, there is a separate entity of the Son, But they are in such agreement. They are such giving and taking. They are such perfect embodiments of what it is to love one another and give and submit to one another that it's, they're one. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? You look at Jesus. 
any other portrayal of God as an angry Zeus ready with lightning to bolt you, ready to, to burn you and to get you. That's not, do you see Jesus doing that? I don't see him doing that. I don't see any example of that kind of activity from Jesus. I see exactly of, of the, the woman with, with, that was caught with an adultery. She was caught red-handed. She's guilty. If anybody that day in that back alley had any right to condemn, to strike down, to throw the first stone, it was Jesus. And he looked at the accusers. He didn't even look at the accusers. He just sits there scribbling on the ground. I think it doesn't even say he looked up at him. He just, as he's scribbling, who was without sin, you cast the first stone. Still not looking up. They all leave eventually, slowly, because they're condemned, because they realize, I, 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 can't, I, I can't say that I'm without sin. Finally, he looks up at the woman and almost feigns <laughs> dumbness. Woman, where are your accusers? I say, they're all gone. She says, they're all gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's our father. That's God. You want to know what God is like? That's what God is like. Always forgiving. Like we read in Psalm 103. He's always, he's quick. He's slow to anger. Quick in mercy. What beauty. What wonderfulness. We read last week, and we're not going to read it from John, John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want to put this, this one phrase up there that I, that I put up last week. The one and only true God of the universe reveals himself and communicates to humanity through Jesus, the word. I want to read it one more time. Let it sink in. The one and only true God of the universe reveals himself and communicates to humanity through Jesus, the word. Ed Cole said this. Years ago, I remember hearing this, and it's, it's, it's stuck with me all these years. He said, uh, this is not going on the screen. You can keep the one and only true God statement back up on the screen. Ed Cole said this, God's methods are men. While men look for better methods. I'm going to mess up this, the quote. It stuck with me, but I can't remember it all. God's methods are better, are men. While men look for better methods, God looks for better men. Now, this quote is referring to the fact, you know, like us, right? You know, people. God looks for people to do things, right? The first five books of the Bible are simply the stories of seven men. Through Eve, through Eve, sin, sin though Eve sinned first, sin did not enter the world until man sinned, because God always holds the man accountable. He holds the man accountable because man made, respons- made responsible steward on the earth. That's Adam, right? He's referring to Adam. And so God look- is looking for better men to do things and do things well. And what better man than Jesus? Right? The writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews, and I think even Paul talks about, it refers to Jesus as being the second Adam, 
There's a new creation. I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a new creation, a new Adam, a new thing that God is doing. And it's a wonderful thing. God's methods are men. And while men look for better methods, men look for better ways to, well, just, just do better. Just follow the Ten Commandments. Just maybe focus on the first four today. And then, you know, maybe, maybe get the next three tomorrow or next week after you've kind of like built a habit. And so we look for better methods, but ultimately our righteousness is not found in the doing. Our righteousness is found in the being of Christ in us. God's methods are men. God's methods are not the snapping of a finger and just magically making you okay. God's method is a man, Jesus Christ. And by that man, we are made righteous. By that man, God does a wonderful new thing. You could have saved us in a second, but yet you sent a child, the man Jesus Christ. And you can read about this wonderful man more. I encourage you, if you haven't read it, uh, read the Gospel of John. Maybe read it all the way through and then go back. I know this is asking a lot of you, but maybe go back after you've just read it through slowly, carefully read it through, and then go back and study it. I don't mean just read it again, but study it and listen. Let the the words sink in. Let them do something. Let them transform you. It's a beautiful gospel. It really is. So full of great things to learn and grow in the Lord. So when we talk about, let me, oh, let me say this. So when we talk about Father, the Father and Son as separate entities, we must be careful not to separate them out of their perfect union in the Trinity. Even Jesus didn't do that. Even Jesus refused to, to separate himself from the Father. He realized, he knows, I mean, he is one with the Father, so of course he knows that there is, there is a, a, a uniqueness a, 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 a separateness of these three persons of God, this Trinity. But for Jesus, the Father's in me and I am in the Father. We are one. So we, if Jesus spoke about the Father this way, we need to speak about and think about God and the Father the same way. One of the ancient creeds of the church was carefully written very early in the history of the church to stop the confusion that was starting to disseminate in some of the churches at the time. So within the first couple of few hundred years of the church, there's even a story, this is, this is holiday appropriate story. There's even a story of a, a certain Saint Nicholas that was attending the council where this creed was written and formed, a certain St. Nicholas, right? And, and, and there's, I don't, you know, I don't know how else to say this. So there's a, one of the guys there, one of the bishops there was propagating this idea that God created Jesus, that he's a created being like you and me. And, and, and basically he refused to go along with, no, that's not what the scriptures teach us. That's not what Jesus taught the, 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 the apostles. That's not what the apostles taught the people that taught us. So we cannot say that that's good. That's, that's just false. And he just got so upset that he smacked the guy. How's that for jolly old Satan, Nick? Ho, ho, ho. Sorry. So the creed says this, back on subject. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being, 
with the Father. Through Him, all things were made. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, He is worshipped and glorified. And the creed is actually much longer than what I've just read. Just read these three important parts for this morning. But I want you to notice, I, I don't think I put that up on the screen. No, I didn't. Uh, we believe in one God, the Father, who's the maker of heaven and earth, right? And in Jesus Christ, who through him all things were made. And then the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. Notice how there's, there's, a, there's a commingling of function. There's a, they all work together. There's not separate, completely separate functions. Okay, Dad, you do this. I'm going to do this. And, and Holy Spirit... H.G., you take care of this. There's not a separateness. I read this quote from Walter Brueggemann. He says, if we need to justify this function, the everlasting Father, in Trinitarian terms with reference to the persons of the Father and Son, it is enough to recognize that all persons of the Trinity share all the functions of the Trinity. Separate functions may not be exclusively assigned to separate persons of the Trinity. But long before we get to such doctrinal formation, it is clear. Jesus exercises familial responsibility like a father. So what is this familial responsibility of Jesus? Or rather, what is the agenda of God? We saw it earlier in Isaiah 9.3. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. And then in John 14, 2, it says, there's more than enough. We read this earlier too. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? This verse, and there's another verse that's similar to it, are often quoted and meaning, and people mean, you know, that this is some far off place. This is not. In my father's home, that phrase there is not referring to a place or a building, but rather the household of God, his family. And the place of Jesus was going to prepare is not a room in some mansion. It's not some building for you to, 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 to boast about in, in, in some heavenly realm, but it's our place in God's family. For instance, Paul even referenced this in... in, in uh, Ephesians, I don't remember if it's the first or the second chapter where he says, we, or no, it's in, gosh, it's in one of Paul's epistles. He says that we are seated together in heavenly places. Amen. We are, not we will be, we are seated together with him. That is the place. That is the place that Jesus went to prepare. The, the disciples had no clue. They didn't get it when he said this. He's just trying to do his best to, to reveal these things that, I mean, for us, I mean, if you really think about it, we get them, I think, to some degree. But even for us, they blow our minds, don't they? I hope they do. These are wonderful. These are awesome things that we, we, we get to be, partake of, that we get to learn and hear. Can you imagine how they felt having no background like we have, no years of learning things, no 2,000 years of the church building doctrine and, and establishing truth. In my father's home is not a place or building. It's the household of God and we get to be a part of that. This is the agenda, the plan of our triune God to enlarge his family, Jew and Gentile. All of mankind is God's agenda. Not one special group of people or another. 
Everyone. Everyone. He hates, he so hates the division and hostility of humanity that Paul, in Ephesians 2, states that Christ put that division to death on the cross. Let's read that. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And here's the, one of the most important parts of this passage. For Christ himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jew and Gentiles, creating in himself one new people. Creating in himself. Creating from the two groups, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to, but to God by means of the death on his cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far from him, and peace to the Jews who were near, and now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Wow. Come on. Wow. That's amazing that we get to be a part of the family of God. What an honor. What a privilege. What an awesome thing. He says he made peace with Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people. And in first, Second Corinthians, Paul also iterates the same sort of idea. Second Corinthians five seventeen. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old is passed away. See, everything has become new in Christ. A new creation was formed. What did we say the role of a father is to create? Create a family specifically, right? So on the death of the cross, he, he ended hostility. He put that to death. Not just sin and death itself, but hostility, division. Reconciliation was the role that he played there. Creating a new family, the work of a father. Christ the Messiah is the catalyst by which our triune God has enlarged Israel. Like he says in, in, in Isaiah 96, he wants to enlarge the family. That's the agenda of God. That's the role of God. His people creating a new family. A family in which everyone is welcome and wanted by our good, good father. Jesus also fulfills the responsibility of a father to guide, guard, and govern. He left us with this one commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you. One thing he told us to do. Love one another. That alone could guide and guard and govern us for all eternity. He also left us with this Holy Spirit who binds us together as family and leads us daily. You can read about that in Romans 8, 15 and 16 and John 14, 16 and 17. Again, I tell you, John, man, that's where the stuff is at. I'm going to leave you a, a quote as we're starting to wrap up here from Walter Brueggemann. He says, Jesus is in such close identity with the Father that he shares these functions, this creation 
the guidance, the guarding, the governance. He shares these functions. His love commandment is to enact the solidarity of the Father, Son, and the community. The everlasting part of it is that the church over generations, many, many generations, has found the abiding presence of this fatherly God to be grounds for joy, for assurance, and for missional energy. Similar to the way that we've concluded the last two sermons, Jesus invited his followers, not just the disciples of his time, but you and me. He invited his followers to continue in the mission of the family-building family ways of the Father when he prayed that they be one. John, I remember, sound like a broken record in the Gospel of John. One of my favorite parts of the Gospel of John is he's praying in the uh, garden. And he prayed for you and me. He says, he says, and I'm not only praying for those that you've given me, but those who will believe on me through them. That's you and me. Jesus prayed and thought of me at that moment. I don't know, that just touches me. He prayed that they be one. And he commanded that we love one another. This is how others know that we are his disciples Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, he said, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Sounds like Psalm 103, doesn't it? And entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. God is calling us to be reconciled to him through Christ. And we too are called to reconcile others both to God and to each other. As Christ is, we saw it last week, as Christ was in the earth, so are we. Please stand. So, I was going to originally end there. And uh, late last night, I I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just leave you with something to do. I am moved by the love of God more than I can probably iterate in any short amount of time here on this stage and behind this pulpit. I don't want to leave you simply with a call to go do something uh, this morning, uh, though I hope you will. I want to leave you with a promise. My favorite preacher and a theologian of mine, her name is Fleming Rutledge. She said this, and you can put this quote on, this, on the screen. It says, the sermon should end with a promise because God's purposes cannot be defeated. That is his promise. So that if we have received the gift of faith, we need to know that God is present in that gift of faith. And even when we think we are losing our faith, God is still there. God is still there. Jesus, the Messiah, everlasting Father, He is. He is still there. When you struggle in faith, He is still there. When you feel rejected, He is there. When you feel alone, yes, He is there. When you hurt because of the wrong that others have done, He's still there. When you feel like you have no hope, no answers, no idea for what's next in your life, 
he is still there. He is everlasting father. His love and his faithfulness is reliable. We can trust in him always. He truly is, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 17, 14, he says, he is Emmanuel, God with us forever and always. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love us so much, that you are truly, as that song says, a good, good father. You do run after us. You're, you're like that father who's waiting on the porch, looking for the son, not waiting for him to approach him, but seeing him off in a distance. You come running after us, Lord. You love us. Your compassion is matchless. Your love, your grace is amazing. And we just stand in awe of the promise that you, God, are always with us. That you, God, are for us. That you love us, Lord. And we just, we just rest in that promise. And we let that promise soak in and sink in that we can truly know who we are in you. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.